and Happy New Year. <laughs> Good to see you all. For the benefit of our visitors, uh, bathrooms are down these back stairs in the back hallway, right at the media, immediately at the bottom of the stairs. There's the men's room. The other end of the hallway toward this side of the building is the ladies' room. There's a step down into the ladies' room, so ladies, be careful. We don't want any uh, hurt ankles or anything like that. Just be careful going into the ladies' room. All right. Brethren, if you would, turn with me in your copies of the Scripture to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Actually, our text will be throughout the first three chapters of Genesis, but there's a reason I've chosen Genesis 6 for uh, our first reading before the sermon. And then we're going to have two short readings, one from Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verses 20 through 21, and then a portion of Revelation 11. But we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 5. Hear once again the very words of God. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the earth shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it uh, to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is, which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And now from Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working you 
what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And now from Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name shall be great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we begin this series considering your covenants in the scripture and the, the importance of those covenants for your people, we pray that we would be given great clarity and understanding. We thank you that you make covenants, that you're a covenant-keeping God, and that because of those covenants, your great promises will be uh, enjoyed by your people, those who have embraced the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that as we consider these uh, various passages throughout the scriptures in the coming weeks, that you would in, uh, embolden us for the work of the kingdom, that our hearts would be uh, enlivened as we endeavor to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust you as you give all things to us. And this we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, as I promised, we're beginning a series on uh, the covenants of God from Scripture. Last month, the elders discussed what I should preach on after our studies through Paul's epistles and uh, the books of Thessalonians, and we settled on this sermon series. For some of you who have been members of Trinity for a while, this will likely be review. Uh, for others who are newer to Trinity, this will be new ground. But whether a review or new information, depending upon your circumstance, I will endeavor to make it both encouraging and pertinent to life, the life of the church. And so let's begin. The passages we've just read provide us with the bookends, if you will, to the references of God's covenants in the scriptures. The passage from Genesis is the first use of the word bereth, which is the Hebrew word for covenant. But the concept of covenants appears in the very first days of creation and extends to the last verse of Revelation. This one concept, uh, if I might be so bold to say, is the very bedrock in which all reality exists, the concept of God's covenants. Now, I did read two passages from the New Testament, one from Hebrews and one from uh, uh, Revelation. The Revelation passage is the last time we see the word covenant used in the scriptures, the actual word itself. The reason I included the Hebrews passage in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews has the word covenant in it more than any other New Testament book. In fact, uh, it's used so many times in the book of Hebrews, it, it rivals 
the numbers of uses as uh, from books like uh, uh, Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, uh, which uses it quite often as well. So the book of Hebrews is going to become a very important book for us in the study uh, because of the number of uses there and uh, uh, the, how God describes the new covenant for us in light of what's gone before in the old covenant. Well, I made a bold statement. On, uh, I, uh, uh, from my perspective, the notion of covenants is the bedrock of reality. The bedrock of reality. And I, I hope to touch on that today, lay the foundation for that uh, from the early parts of the book of Genesis, but then build upon that over time. And I'm going to recommend some books for your use as well. For those who would like to study further, there are many, many good books uh, on covenant theology and the importance of covenant in our lives. And so uh, throughout the series, I'll be uh, going through that as well. Well, if, if this is the bedrock of reality, it'd be important for me to define the term covenant so we have an understanding of where I'm going with this and what, what the word means. Uh, different authors have defined it. I've come up with my own definition. I'm going to use that, and, and uh, uh, in light of that definition, that will become the structure for today's sermon. A covenant is a unilateral promise from God with attending ethics and sanctions, both positive and negative sanctions, that God graciously institutes for his own glory and the good of his people for all eternity. That's my definition. I'm going to read it again. A covenant is a unilateral promise from God with attending ethics and sanctions, both positive and negative, that God graciously institutes for his own glory the good of his people and for all eternity. And I've, obviously, if I'm going to make all of these statements, I have to prove those from the scriptures. And so I'm going to endeavor to, to begin doing that today. This series, I'm not sure how long it's going to last. I doubt it will be less than five uh, sermons. I hope not too much beyond that if it goes beyond five, because our attention spans are kind of short. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's what I envision for this series. Defining a covenant is very difficult because it's like a precious gem that has been cut and polished with many facets. Think about Ladies, think about your, uh, maybe your engagement ring or some precious gem that you have. And sometimes you look at it in the light and you let the light refract through the facets and it, it changes. If you put it up against a, a wall, if it's a diamond, sometimes those lights color the wall. Well, a covenant is like a many faceted, faceted gem. And this definition that I've made has at least one glaring omission. And that is that God's covenants are often given with signs and seals of their reality. In fact, I, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to say they all are, but most often they are given with signs and seals of the reality, which become for us reminders that God is at work in our lives, very visual things, uh, 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 things that we can touch and feel and see. Uh, and so that's omitted from my definition, but we will deal with those in the coming weeks. I don't want you to think that I'm going to leave out signs and seals of covenants because they are very important. At this time, however, it would be helpful for us to consider the elements I've included in the definition, and this necessarily requires us 
to delve into the scriptures. And if I am correct in my assertion that covenants begin at the time of the creation, we must turn to Genesis for that instruction. After all, all the answers are in Genesis, right, folks? Okay. In the very beginning of creation, when God created mankind, God gave instructions to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the earth. We see that in Genesis 1.28. But God also said to Adam in Genesis 2.16 and 17, Of every tree of the garden you, you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And with these truths in mind, let's consider the definition and see if the definition describes a covenant in the creation narrative. Now again, the definition I've given has five requirements. A unilateral promise from God. Second, an ethical component. Third, sanctions promise, both negative and positive. A beneficial facet of God's glory and good for his people has to be assumed there as well, and an everlasting impact or consequence. So if all of those five elements are found here, then I think we can naturally assume that the scriptures teach that Adam and Eve were created into a covenant relationship with God. Is there a unilateral promise from God at creation, an ethical component, sanctions, positive and negative? Are there benefits of God's, uh, the benefits of God's glory assumed and good for his people and an everlasting impact or consequence? I believe the answer is yes to all five of those. Now, our catechism and confessions are very helpful in identifying these five elements. And so I'm going to turn your attention. I'm going to read from question 20 in the Westminster Larger Catechism and the answer to that question because I think it touches on each of these elements. The question that we find there in, in uh, the larger catechism, question 20, what was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? In the estate in which he was created. We know that there's another estate of man after the fall, but this is before the fall. So what were the providences of God in the creation of man? The providence of God, here's the answer, the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion and ordaining marriage for his health, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge bidding to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. So all of those things are included at creation. I've got a listing of all the, the uh, proof texts for those. If you'd like those after the, uh, after the service today, I'd be happy to share them with you. Or if you'd like my notes from today, I'd be happy to give you my notes as well. And they're included there. But from all this, we understand mankind was created into a covenant of life. That's what our, our uh, uh, catechism teaches us. And as our confession calls it in other places, a covenant of works. Now, I prefer the language of the catechism, a covenant of life, as Adam and Eve had no need of gaining merit with God in their original state. They didn't have to gain merit with God when they were first uh, 
uh, created. They were already in paradise and were not under any curse. Life for them was perfect. Nevertheless, they did have obligations before God. And those obligations were not burdensome, but they were unilaterally given by God to be observed. God made, made the rules, if you will. And he communicated that with Adam and Eve. They weren't burdensome, much like Christ says, take upon me your, my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's, it's not a hard thing to be a Christian, Christ says. Now, the consequences of being a Christian can be hard because we are, we are messengers of truth. And, and God's enemy, Satan, and his minions don't like truth tellers. They, they much prefer lying tellers instead of truth tellers. And so they go after them. And that's why Christians can be uh, martyred for their faith. They're bringing the truth into darkness. And those who love darkness more than light will attack the truth tellers, those who bring the light to the world. They can't reach out and, and touch God. They, they tried that once when Christ became a man and they crucified him. But what happened the third day? He rose again and conquered sin and death both. He conquered sin on the cross by uh, shedding his blood. He conquered death in the resurrection that we might be justified unto eternal life. They can't touch Christ anymore, but they can touch his messengers. They go after the messengers. That's us. That can be hard. But the work of being a Christian, if you can call it that, is not burdensome. And Jesus says that. Take upon me my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden's light. Such was the case with Adam. Look, fill the earth, subdue it. See this tree? Don't eat from that tree. Every other tree in the garden's yours to eat from. And my guess is those fruits were very enjoyable. Probably many of the fruits that we eat now. Just this morning I had a few cherries. My guess is they were shipped up here from South America. Uh, this is not the, the time of year to have cherries from the United States. But all of these things uh, uh, they had privileges with and they didn't have to, they did not have to be burdened by them. The only thing they weren't to do was eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had created them to live in obedience in paradise and work to enhance the glories of his creation. One of the things that uh, I'm hoping uh, we'll, we'll learn from this, this series of lessons as well as some other studies that we intend to do in the coming weeks is the notion of us being recreators in God's creation. That's what he created Adam and Eve to do. When he tells them to have dominion over the earth and to, to care the, for the garden, what he's saying is make it, make it be recreative. Make it, make it flourish beyond what I've already given you. I've given you every, every tool to do it with, your, your intellect, uh, various skills that you'll have, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the materials to do it with, Make it beautiful, more beautiful even than it is now. And of course, sometimes we see those things. I'm, 
I'm often amazed at some of the paintings that people uh, paint. And we have some good painters in our congregation. Some of the music that's produced, the symphonic music that's produced, sometimes when you go to a, a symphony, of course, these things don't happen anymore. We're in the age of COVID. Uh, fortunately, we have recorded music, right? Uh, but th- those, those, those harmonies are beautiful, and they warm our souls. Even when we sing here in church sometimes, some of the hymns that we sing bring tears to my eyes just to hear the harmonies that are sung. Uh, the, uh, all of these things are beautiful, and God gave us the ability to produce and, and that's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do originally with the creative order. And, of course, something happened, and we're going to get to that very quickly. But God created them to live in obedience and to enhance, enhance the glories of his creation. And God's unilateral covenant was not in any way harsh. It was altogether good, as, we are all, uh, of, uh, as are all of God's covenants. And so uh, that brings us to the ethics of this circumstance. The ethics of the covenant of life were threefold. Fill the earth, subdue the earth, and don't eat of the forbidden fruit. That's the ethics of this original covenant with that, that Adam was created into. I'm going to get to that importance in, in a few moments. But Adam was created into a covenant. The ethical requirements were few, they were simple, and yet Adam's failure in one was his downfall in them all. His failure in one was his downfall in them all. The sanctions of obedience and disobedience are contemplated here as well. When I say sanctions, sometimes we, all, we only think of the negative side of sanctions. But there are positive sides of sanctions as well. Good things happen if obedience is done, right? Good things would happen for Adam and Eve if obedience was practiced. Just like for us. Uh, If we practice obediently our lives before God, what does God uh, promise us? We're going to get to all that in a few lessons in in just a couple of weeks. But it's it's assumed here as well. It's it's already assumed for Adam and Eve because they were created into a perfect paradise and nothing's inhibiting you from doing what God's said for you to do. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the garden. Be recreative. Take this to the next level, if you will. Sometimes I chafe hearing that, that phrase, but that, you hear it in sports all the time. But take, I think God is teaching Adam and Eve, I've given you abilities and, and, and ideas and a mind. Use it for my glory and your good. Use all these, this, this wonderful stuff that I've created and, 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 and do even better with it. But there are also negative sanctions. If you don't keep the, the ethics of which I'm teaching you, primarily this one item, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of the forbidden fruit, things are going to go bad and you don't understand how bad they're going to get. This is, death comes with that. Well, We'll deal with that in in the coming weeks as well. But that's a sanction. The positive sanctions are there. They're assumed. They're shown to Adam and Eve. And the negative sanctions are warned to Adam and Eve should they fall, should they do the things that they're told not to do. 
What would the world look like had Adam and Eve not sinned? Have you ever thought that thought? What would the world look like had they never sinned? That thought is beyond our imaginings. It truly is beyond our imaginings. We, don't, we can't understand that because we, it's like a fish in water. What would life be like out of the water? Well, <laughs> that's an odd question for a fish. Death is the only thing it would know outside of water. I mean, that, that's its, its world. That's its reality. Our reality is we live in a fallen world. We really can't imagine, except for from the revelation of God, what it would be like to be outside of a fallen circumstance. We really don't, we don't have that capacity, except where God teaches us these things we can expect in the heavenlies. And there are a few places in scripture that get pretty vivid, and they're exciting for us to think about. But we don't really understand what it would have been like had Adam and Eve not fallen. One day, when we who have placed our faith and trust in the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, we will not only see what it would be like to be back in the days before the fall, but we'll experience it. We're going to live in that circumstance. And I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. I did, I did do a sermon series on, on the... Uh, Glory, what, it, what would be a little bit uh, of what glory would be like. If you'd like to, we can pull those off of the uh, computer probably if you'd like to, to hear those sermons that I did on that. The negative sanction of God's promise here in, in this covenant was immediately imposed upon Adam and Eve when they did eat of the forbidden fruit. God separated them from himself. We don't often think about death in that regard, but that's truly the essence of death, to being separated from God. God separated Adam and Eve from himself. He withdrew himself from them. And so they, they understood isolation, loneliness, and all of the things that come with it. Physical death would eventually come. That was part of the, the curse as well, the negative sanction. But immediately... They understood death is not a good place to be because God withdraws himself from us, his, his, his blessing, and a curse then is imposed upon the creation. They were expelled from the garden and the creation was cursed. Physical and spiritual death then came upon mankind and all creation was cursed. Additionally, the perpetual nature of God's curse upon mankind was added to this whole thing. And it's because of the nature of God himself. Uh, recently, I've, I've, I've preached on uh, Malachi chapter 3, where God says, uh, I am God, I do not change, therefore you're not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And I unpacked that verse a little bit for the congregation. What's important there is, I am God, I do not change. The nature of God is not something that's liquid. It's not vaporous, meaning it doesn't... It's vaporous in some respects. The Spirit of God is likened unto a vapor, right? The Holy Ghost. But that doesn't mean that he's not a person, nor does it mean that he's not powerful or uh, that he's not God. It means that uh, he's a spirit, 
And, of course, the scriptures teach us that we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. That God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That was, the, that was overcome when Christ became a man, which was miraculous in and of itself. So we know God in differing forms and the three persons of God, but God primarily is a spirit, and we are to worship him as such. Well, the, the perpetual nature of God does not change in that it, he, he changes his mind. God never changes his mind. He decrees that which comes to pass, and it does come to pass. Isaiah chapter 46, I believe it's uh, 8 through 11, is a good place to go to, to come to that conclusion. But God says to Adam, if you, if you disobey me, it's going to have not just consequences for you. These are going to be eternal consequences, eternal consequences for mankind. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. For as in Adam, all die. As in Adam, all die. Why? Because we're all sinners. Paul wrote in Romans several different places. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. These notions are, are codified for us in Holy Writ. Uh, God tells us this very carefully. And, and, and for the benefit of us to come to grips with those very things. So none of us, none of us are exempt from the consequences of sin. Adam's sin. Did Adam know that he... In his sin, he would affect all mankind. That we don't know. We don't have any revelation that tells us that that was the case. But that is the case. Sin has eternal consequences, and that brings us to the last element of our definition. There is an inheritance for sinners. That is eternal punishment. And there's also an inheritance for those who live in obedience to God. And that's eternal life. And that comes from a, a, another Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The last Adam, who was the promised Adam when God punished Adam and Eve for their sin in Genesis 3, 13 through 15. And there we read these words. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? This is after she has sinned. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every, living, every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's saying this to the serpent. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the English version. The way it appears in the, in the Hebrew is a lot, much more uh, uh, profound. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what her seed will do to you, Satan, your seed. That's the promise of God. And here God promises another who will conquer Satan and his minions. And this is the beginnings of the covenant of grace. Or as God's people would later learn the new covenant, and that's the covenant in which we live. Now, earlier I read the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, 22. 
Now I want to read the entirety of that verse. As for in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Brethren, there is hope for sinners. We are all sinners, as I've already mentioned. All of us are sinners, and we have to deal with that sin before God. God says, humble yourselves before me and I will lift you up. Come to me and confess your sins and repent and I will give you a new life, God says. Newness of life. You must be born again, Jesus declared. And that's a a declaration to every man, woman, and child on earth. You must be born again. How? In whom should we be born? How are we going to go? The man he was talking to. Jesus was talking, will I go back in my mother's womb and and be born again? He says, you must be born from above. In other words, something has to happen to you that you can't cause yourself. Nor can uh, others of your family, like your mother, whom you were born from first. They can't do this. It's got to come from heaven. This has to be a new birth from heaven. Children... Please hear this. God says, because you're a sinner, you need to confess and to repent of it. And I will lift you up. Truly, that's gracious and merciful. God is both of those things, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. But he says, call upon me to do these things, and I will lift you up. The hope is in the name of Lord. We've already said that in our worship service who made heaven and earth. His name is Yeshua, Jesus, the Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And brethren, that's another covenant, isn't it? Lambs being slaughtered, blood being shed for the remission of sins. It was prefigured in an Old Testament cover and came to actual uh, fruition in the New Covenant. You see, this, this thread is woven throughout the whole Bible. That's how I can say this is the bedrock of reality. This isn't some just fanciful notion of theologians. This is reality. This is where you and I live. And this is what I want to leave you leave with you. Because God is the creator and he never changes, when he created Adam into a covenant, He set a precedent for all mankind. We are all created into God's covenants, both the Adamic covenant and the second Adam's covenant, the new covenant. We are all born into that, and we'll be held accountable for both. You say, but not all people become Christians. Yes, but that's not the nature. You've got to understand, and this is what I hope to to give give you a, a way to hold on to covenants, even if you're not the beneficiary of the positive sanctions in a covenant, it doesn't mean you're not part of the covenant. It doesn't mean you're not responsible for it. What about the negative sanctions? What about the people in the old covenant who never believed in the promises that God gave them? What happened to those people? They're in eternal judgment. They're part of the covenant on the negative side. But what about those who believe? Those of us who've placed our faith in Christ, the promised Messiah. What about the Old Testament believers? What were they placing their faith in? 
that God would bring the one who would crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised. The very promise in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the covenant of grace, that's what they were to believe in. God will provide. God provides salvation. And I'm going to trust him for that. Wasn't that accounted to, to Abraham for righteousness? What was, it, what was it he was accounted for? That he believed God. Eight times God came to him and said, do something. And he did it every, every time. That's what, that's what Abraham, his faith was the thing that was accounted to righteousness. Brethren, that's what God calls us to. Believe in my promises. Believe in my declarations. Both the good and the bad. And act according to what I say. And I will lift you up. That's the message of the scripture. And it's covenanted with us. It's covenanted with us. We have been born within the last century, have been born into a perpetual state of God's covenants. Just like Adam was created into a perpetual state of God's covenants. They are inescapable. God's covenants are inescapable. Either you're part of the covenant on the negative side, or you're going to be part of the covenant on the positive side. There's no other reality. That's why I say covenants are a bedrock of reality. You can't be outside of a covenant. No one is outside of a covenant. We're all in a covenant. We're either in it by faith, trusting in God with the, the promises of, of glory and his blessing, or we're in, we're in a covenant with God that we've broken and we have no hope of restoring outside of humbling ourselves before God, that he might lift us up. Reality, reality is covenants. That's reality. And brethren, that's a good thing. But pastor, I never chose to be in a covenant. That's good, because you would never have chosen to do it. That's the nature of man, sinful man. God graciously put you in a covenant already. Now the question is, am I going to recognize his gracious covenant and act accordingly, or am I going to just reject the whole thing and suffer the consequences? That's where all men are. So, I hope that doesn't scare you too much. <laughs> this is a good thing. We need to look at it as a good thing, and we will in the coming days. So, we cannot escape God's covenants, and they do not change because God does not change. And so in the coming weeks, we'll see just how important the perpetuity of God's covenants are to his people. The fact that he does not change is a great blessing. Because he makes promises in his covenants. And those promises don't change. His promises to you. You who have humbled yourselves before him that he might lift you up. The promise that he will do that does not change. I will remember, well, I'll read this first when we do communion. But we're going to look at all the major covenants of the Old Testament in the coming weeks, as well as the New Covenant, and I hope that that just, it gives you an appreciation for how God deals with his people, these great promises that become ours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bring before you uh, the joy that our we bring before you thanksgiving for the joy that you've promised to your people.